As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. A word of warning about tonight's show. While it's not explicit in nature, it will depict descriptions of graphic violence from a historical setting that is not suitable for sensitive listeners or younger children. Listener discretion is advised. Astonishing Legends would like to thank Com, Mint Mobile, Quip, Harry's, and our contributors at Patreon.com for making tonight's show possible. In part one of our series on the Blood Countess... We introduced you to Elizabeth Bathory. We shared information about not only who she was, but whom she descended from, and the sordid details of the horrific crime she stood accused of committing. We told you the circumstances of her arrest, and what her trial was like, and explored some of the possible reasons she may have been the perpetrator of such atrocities. With all of that, we're still only halfway into our look at Countess Ergebet. In tonight's part two, and the final part of our series on her, we will take a look at whether or not she really did these things. Did she actually bathe in the blood of her virginal victims? Is that even possible? You might be surprised to find out that even today there's a corporation that will sell the blood of younger people to those of a certain age who desire rejuvenation. With a story as famous as this one, The ties to folklore are numerous, and as we've learned when it comes to the astonishing legends we cover on the show, oftentimes the tail wags the dog in these cases. Is that what's happening here? How can we uncover the reality of what is at the root of the legends of Batoria Jebet? We'll do our best to give you the tools you need to develop your own opinion on her legacy, and we'll share our conclusions tonight as well. <laughs> Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. See my hands, how cold they are. It is nothing, my lady, the guards assured her. Will you not now retire for the night? The next morning, August 25th, 1614, hearing no movement, the guards entered her chamber and found her lying on the floor with her feet supported by a pillow. She was dead. Paraphrased from Tony Thorne's book, Countess Dracula, Bloomsbury Publishing. Join us tonight for the final part of our two-part series on the Blood Countess. And we're back. Thank you so much for returning after our two-week break. Tonight's show will conclude our two-parter on Elizabeth Bathory, and we're dark next week, but back the week after that with a fascinating story of missing time, told to us in a roundtable format with special guests Dan Povenmire, the co-creator of Phineas and Ferb, and playwright Susan Lambert, as well as her husband, our good friend Rich Haddam. 
We'll also have a follow-up discussion in that episode with prolific author, podcaster, researcher, and speaker Micah Hanks about what missing time stories have in common and how their mechanics might work. Yes. So come back for that on July 27th of 2019. And if you haven't done it already, download the free Himalaya app for your smartphone and give Astonishing Legends a follow there to be sure you get quick access to our latest episodes whenever they release. All right, let's get back to Countess Ergebet. Okay, now it's time to talk about whether or not Elizabeth Bethory really did this stuff. That's the big question that is hard to answer, but we are going to take a look at what we could figure out about whether or not she actually is guilty of these crimes. It may upend a big legend here in this kind of um, vampiric, horrific, gothic tale of Elizabeth Erzabeth that maybe she didn't do any of this. And when we go to check into these stories, that's also an answer, that it might be an inflated legend. There might be some truth to it, but we're here to determine how much. Well, various authors and researchers have suggested that there may have just been a political and gender conspiracy against Elizabeth due to her vast land holdings and power as a noblewoman. Once her husband, Ferenc, had died, there may have been an effort to nullify her standing and seize her lands. There was a lot of political and religious strife during the era, with the Ottoman Wars as a backdrop, and added to this was the increasing Habsburg control over Hungary. Elizabeth was raised a Calvinist Protestant, which had a foothold in the area, and King Matthias was a Roman Catholic from the House of Habsburg. Well, in light of this, there's an article on the Ancient Origins website, which sums up these arguments pretty well, in that over the last couple of decades, we have a number of historians and researchers and writers who've been claiming that Elizabeth Battery was a victim of some kind of conspiracy here, in that political and possibly religious. And two of the most notable authors here are Laszlo Nagya and Dr. Irma zardeksky Kardosh who have argued that a lot of this conspiracy started from, and has gone on through history here, as a conspiracy started by Turzo to imprison her, seeing her as not only just a cousin and a relative from a, a rival clan, but also a political rival that had to be dealt with. So the main points of this argument from this article is that, first, Turzo tried to imprison Bathory as soon as he gained power as Palatine of Hungary. And some scholars have thought that shows there's a, a bit of pre-planning on his part. Premeditated. That, yeah, it was. he was kind of lining up his cards, his dominoes, what do you say? He's lining up his chess pieces here to make some moves, as a lot of these guys were pretty Machiavellian in that, in that way. And also, uh, Turzo had been assisting King Matthias in his efforts to extend the Habsburg influence over all of Hungary and the Hungarian nobles. And the Batory family was one of the most powerful. So here's another angle where the king figures in, and they're maybe plotting together to get a hold of the Battery Najdodi holdings, because it added up to a significant amount of wealth. The next point here is that King Matthias and the imperial family did owe substantial amounts of money to Elizabeth for the Battery part of it, but also this may have started with debt to her husband Ferenc, because they were also powerful. So There you go. If you don't want to pay back your loan, what have we found out with the Knights Templar? Easy to just round them up and get rid of them. Yeah. (laughs) Instead of having to pay them. After all, there's two of them on each horse. Yeah. (laughs) Can't ride that (laughs) fast. Well, they're poor, so they're, they're sharing a saddle. But they also had vast coffers, so an easy thing to do is put them aside, arrest them. And in this case, it may have been easier to just have Elizabeth eliminated. Also, she's a widow who's in charge of a large estate. and 
it was easy to accuse her of things like witchcraft. And back in the day, scapegoating widows for various things in order to get rid of them was pretty common in Central and Eastern Europe. It's a pretty easy way to get rid of somebody or bring them down, at least in the eyes of their fellow nobles, is to accuse them of something horrible. So maybe this is the case. Yeah, so this is a, it's a feeding frenzy over her land and holdings now that she's a widow, and it would be an easy thing to trump up these charges if you just had a little seed of something and set her aside. So that's a possibility, yeah. is what these folks are saying. So if we look at the book Infamous Lady, The True Story of Countess Elizabeth Battery by Kimberly Craft. That is the second book that offers a lot of great information. She's a notable battery scholar. I keep thinking of the word battery. That's the okay. <laughs> You can like, say it. You know what? Duracell. That's fine. Just say it that way. Yeah, battery. But with her husband, Ferenc, gone, what Kraft says is that Elizabeth was now more free to commit her crimes. But then King Matthias II was also now more freed up to acquire the huge tracts of land that came about from the battery Nadajdi marriage. After Elizabeth's death, whatever holdings she had left were divided amongst her four children. Now, King Matthias II then later accused her children of treason based on their connection to their mother and her crimes. After that, all land holdings of the Nadajdi family, plus any that had been produced from the battery Nadajdi union, are now available to the Hungarian crown. Pretty convenient. Mm. So her children were then banished from Hungary. They fled to Poland. While some of the descendants of Ferenc and Elizabeth returned to Hungary after 1640, it was the end of the family's noble status there. They do say that there are some descendants. The bloodline still goes to this day, actually. Yeah, so I wonder if, D, yeah. if they want to get that pile of rocks back that's <laughs> the castle there. It might be kind of cool to own a castle, but tremendous upkeep. You wouldn't want to live there. Now, Nicholas Cage said they're cold drafting. Exactly. Yeah, so you know, he should know he had like five of them. <laughs> Although Terzo had convinced King Matthias II not to execute her, his motivations for intervening in that is still unknown. Now, around the time of the trial, apparently Matthias II owed a huge debt to Elizabeth, and now since she was in confinement, it was decided he shouldn't have to repay her. So maybe for Matthias, house arrest was effective enough at the time, and like we said, the keeping her alive, maybe that was, I mean, it's, this is all speculation. It is, but maybe yeah. that was uh, Torzo's like ounce of guilt that he had, having been assigned by Ferenc to watch out for her. Well, what you'll see here is that there's arguments back and forth, and we're going to take a look at the fourth part of the argument, because it may have been politically better not to have executed a high-ranking noble, just put them aside under house arrest in their castle, walled up or not. She's now out of action. That's what your goal is. But then again, would it have been easier to just kill this person with a really good reason? But here's the argument. You don't know these people's motivations, really. And the legal portions of this are, are not that clear cut. Who gets what? Because, of course, influence and power can bend the rules a little bit, or you can shade them however you want. Because Torzo, did he not want her executed? Because of these family ties, and he was really trying to spare her life, what did he get out of it? Didn't seem much, though. It's not like, you know what I'm saying, if he kept her locked up, then he gets to acquire everything. So one argument also is that he didn't have enough proof against a high-ranking noble because the words of, uh, you know, the testimonies of serfs and maybe even priests or whatever didn't count. But if you have lower nobility testifying against her, that may have been enough. So in this instance, it's hard to say what he actually got out of it or what his motivations were. That is a large part of the speculation. Well, from her entry on Encyclopedia Britannica, it does describe her as a very powerful woman. 
and uh, she became even more so after she started controlling the Nagajdi family holdings of her husband after his death, and that there was a large debt that Matthias owed to Battery. And this debt was canceled by her family in exchange for permitting them to manage her captivity. So that's an interesting point here of this argument, is that the king really could have pressed Torzo to execute her. I think he was in his kingly rights there to demand that or not let up on it. So it's an interesting point here about this negotiation between a king who really has good reason to want her out of the way, plus if he believes that she actually did it, that's also a good reason to put somebody to death back then, where you didn't have the arguments you have now about it. It's just like, no, no, that you, you can't go on living after that. But he also had a financial gain to it. So in this negotiation, the debts are now going to be canceled, but the family also gets to decide what happens to her. And they decide, well, let's just keep her out of the way, out of the limelight, at the castle, and let her live out her days there. Her captivity there suggests that the acts were attributed to a political motivation of sorts that also may have allowed these relatives making these decisions to appropriate her lands. Well, here's a fascinating turn, and this is something that, you know, I was vaguely familiar with this story before we got into it, but this is something that I had not heard that I think is really interesting. And that is the fact that it's argued that Torzo misrepresented what he and the men found when they arrived to the castle for the investigation, mm -hmm. and that the dead and dying girls were actually patients of Elizabeth Battery, and that she was trying to heal them with her knowledge of medicine. Medieval medicine, <laughs> <laughs> nevertheless, which sometimes worked, but also sometimes was completely ridiculous and cruel by today's standards, as I'm sure everyone has heard. So here is an interesting take on all of this, and this is information compiled for us by a relatively new member to the Astonishing Research Corps, Elizabeth. Not a relation. Yeah, not of think. no relation. We're not going to give her last name because we don't do that without permission on the research members. But mm. So <laughs> Elizabeth from the research corps had put this information together. And this is, again, referring to Tony Thorne, the author and researcher we've been talking about throughout this series. Thorne has some fascinating research about the role of women in medicine at the time and in the region that Elizabeth Bathory was alive. He noted that the medical professionals, and she's saying she uses that phrase loosely because the roles don't equate to what we would think of now as medical professionals, of the time were exclusively male, but few and far between outside the big cities. Local women, both aristocratic and lowborn, took their place for people out in the regions who needed healing or spells. Mm, mm, yeah, works. As an aristocrat, Elizabeth would have had a role in helping to heal the sick in her domain and giving advice on health matters. Elizabeth and her husband did not have a male doctor or barber surgeon mm. at their court. So that meant the women healers, including perhaps Elizabeth herself, would have had to take on minor surgeries and the prescription and application of medicines. There was no line between mainstream medicine and alternative medicine, in quotes there, at the time. Legitimate healing procedures at the time included everything from sensible hygiene to watching a cat lick its genitals. This is uh, supposed to be good for fertility, apparently. Oh, well, certainly. Which anyone that, who's had a cat has seen. Well, that makes uh, sense, doesn't it? That's totally logical. Yes. Yeah. As such, many of the procedures undertaken, especially when done by unskilled laypeople, would have been horrific, even at the time. Thorne says, quote, the mock surgical techniques that Elizabeth and her female assistants resorted to in the absence of better qualified male surgeons were indistinguishable from torture, and anyone carrying them out would need to become hardened 
to others' suffering. That said, this all would have been known at the time, and people would be relatively accustomed to the brutality of contemporary medicine. For them to describe what she was doing as torture during her trial indicates it must have been something truly shocking even for them. Yeah, that's a good point there I have that maybe counters a little bit of that uh, description of people didn't know. People at the time, they would certainly know, you know, what was a medicinal practice like bloodletting, leeches, even cauterizing with hot pokers and all that, between that and torture. Yeah, they, they were would. certainly familiar with torture as well. But going back to the original point of this, maybe this was the opportunity that Torzo saw to exaggerate what was happening and declare that it was torture when in fact it wasn't. Well, you could, and then you're back to the argument because of all of these depositions that were taken at the time, were these over 300 testimonies forced or bribed or what was the case here? And then the people who actually testified at trial during the trial, were those exaggerated or coerced? Because it's not just Torzo's report, it's that there's a narrative here. You know what I'm saying? Like, if you're going to fake all this, then there's a narrative that they all have to stick to. And yes, the, the descriptions of the torture were wide ranging. To this point, I don't think it would be a common mistake of the, the townsfolk going, oh, well, we heard screams, but that's probably just medicines being applied and, and people getting stitched up. Yeah, that's probably just Juliet's annual checkup. You know, it's like, it hurts and those things, people I'm sure screamed out because there's no anesthetic or painkillers back then, but they certainly would have been aware of what was what. That's my point. And so if you go to court testifying and you haven't been coerced, but you were just at the castle and you saw some of this going on, you would know what the difference was. And Torzo would have known as well. So then you have to wonder, is it just Torzo coming in and making all the stuff up, having seen some actual people being treated, young women being treated? And that's the other thing is that it's all young women. It wasn't like it was a hospital she was running. Okay, it was all young women, 10 to 14 or so. And they all needed treatment. And it was all this kind of brutality. And then you wonder, it's like, well, these are also people's daughters. What are they testifying to? Right. Something to keep in mind as we cover the theories here. And to that point, if it was a conspiracy of some kind, and I'm, I'm sure mm -hmm. we should save this discussion for conclusions, but just you would have to enlist a lot of people to not tell the truth when you look at the number of witnesses and all the testimonies that came forward. Sure. So that is, yeah, that's another And that's point a hard here. thing to pull off. Right. But they're saying for the guilt of Torso in this, bringing her down and her family would have benefited his own political standing, it is argued, and that of his own powerful, noble family. So they get a rise out of bringing her part of the family down, even though they're somewhat related. On the other hand, some sources claim that Torzo tried to reduce the damage to the Battery family name by persuading the king not to bring her to trial and execute her, and also not sending the trial records to the court archives, but instead keeping them in his castle's attic. So you see what I'm saying here is that Torzo could have turned over the court records to the royal court archives, but instead he didn't. Now you wonder, it's like, well, yeah, because it implies that he was making the stuff up. He didn't want this found out generations later. Or did he do it because these were horrific and he didn't want these as public record? You're kind of back to that. So, yeah. But he did not turn them over. He kept them in his attic and they weren't found for a long time. One thing that's really interesting about Torzo is he's, he's a mysterious character because <laughs> he, is a little he bit, seems yeah. to be at both ends of the spectrum on this situation. Well, that's what adds to this mystery here is that what were his aims and was it a little bit of both? Like, yeah, where well, were his allegiances? What yeah. were his... 
it's interesting. In our final wrap up here, we'll discuss that. And maybe to me, it was a little bit of both. Like, well, she is a family member, of course. Yeah. I don't really want her executed. Plus, again, that looks really bad on yeah. all of our family names here. So we'll just keep her away. And if that happens, maybe I get a little side taste of something, some lands here that she has to give up or, right. or that's going to be divided up. But there's really no solid evidence of that either. Now, here's something that's interesting. These trial records were found by a Jesuit priest in the 1720s, and it may be the same priest. I haven't found a name connection yet, but this priest was named Laszlo Turozzi, who wrote a volume called Tragica Historia in 1729. And there's another title to this thing called Ungaria Suis Cum Regibus Compendio Data. I think if you plug that well into done. if you plug that into Google Translate from Latin, it's uh, Hungary was given his own with the kings of the gains. It's kind of a, a well tragic history, you could say, with kingship here and what was being gained at the time. Wait, so what you're saying is that these trial records, the ones that were hidden away in the attic, were found by a Jesuit priest in the 1720s with the same last name as the person who wrote Tragica Historia in 1729, but you're not sure, you don't know for sure if that's the same person <laughs> well, or if there's a connection. Yeah, here's what I'm saying is that I've seen this line a few in a few different places that a Jesuit priest, you'll see that as part of the story, a Jesuit priest or a Catholic priest found these trial records in 1720s and then a, another priest. So I, I believe it's the same guy. I'm just, I'm totally yes. not sure. I didn't want to go on record. And somebody coming back later is like, that's not the same priest, you know. Oh, right. Yeah. Okay. So I'm just saying like, I, I didn't see But it matches the time period and the name match. Well, that's what I'm pretty solid about. But we that. don't take, we don't make those leaps <laughs> in Astonishing Legends. I try if we not can't to. prove them. Yeah, yeah. Kids don't be writing air school papers on anything we've ever, ever said, said. Yeah. Ever or will. Don't do it. But what's interesting is that this is the first written account of Elizabeth Bathory's tale. Tragica tragi Historia. Yeah, okay. yeah. And it's also in Tragica Historia that the legend of Bathory taking a bloodbath to keep her beauty first appears in print. Ah. So there you go, Scott. You want to know where that story first appears? It's from this Jesuit priest going over the trial records that he discovered in an attic in that castle owned by Torzo, or he was living there. That'd be quite a fine, but he was yeah. studied enough that he could he could read these in medieval Hungarian. So a lot of this legend kind of starts with this. I mean, there was oral legend, of course. People talked about her and her crimes from there, but as a written account, it would be this Turozzi who would write it down, and, and this piece of writing will be looked to for this legend. And him stating that these bloodbaths actually happened, people took that as fact. Yeah. So to be clear and to repeat this, that bloodbath business, none of that actually happened or was recorded or reported during the time of the trial. Right. Did not end up in these records. Now, a bunch of other really horrible stuff did. Things like, you know, something we hadn't mentioned before, that she would have forced these young girls to sit on nettles. Then she would have them take a bath and then she would press these nettles down onto them, onto their shoulders or, or front and back painful, horrible things like that. But her actually bathing in the blood in any fashion was not part of that original testimony. It only came up in Tragica Historia. But there were some other things as well described in his volume there. And that is, you know, at the time she was considered very attractive to the point of extreme narcissism, where it was claimed that she would stand in front of a full-length mirror for hours on end, a mirror she had built just for her, 
which included something like really tall chair arms so she could lean on them while standing. Hmm. Now, what it made me think of here is like, you know, if you like to think that Elizabeth practiced some form of witchcraft or some occult practices, it sounds a little like she may have been using the mirror for something like scrying or foretelling the future or using it like a psychomantium for communicating with spirits and the dead. It just reminded me of that. Or she just really liked to look at her own image or that this was just part of the story made up about her to make her seem even more vain. Yes, because the Tragica Historia, it could be that this is our Gray Barker in this, oh. in this story. This <laughs> is this... the person like make trying to make the story yeah. have longer legs. What do you really? call him? His wacky stories. No, his, his uh, goofy stories here. And Gray Barker, by the way, is the gentleman who was involved with John Keel. And back during the time of the Mothman, he was notorious for pranking John Keel and also writing more absurd stories that he would get out there, but to sell books in his case. What I'm trying to point out here is that a narrative, a story, a legend about Elizabeth is starting to form now over the years after her death, and it's getting hammered into a pretty solid story that we all know now, and that is how legends are born, usually from real acts or something kind of real going on, and it gets added to, it gets molded over time. Authors kind of weigh in with good facts and bad, and that's how the stories form. So it's a little like the birth of a legend, really. But however, regarding the bloodbaths, the witness accounts had surfaced later in 1765, and when they were published in 1817 for the first time, there was no mention of any of these bloodbaths, as we said. So perhaps Tarozzi was doing that all too familiar, embellishing to make a good story, you know, just to sensationalize it. And according to the, the Sci-Hi blog, quote, the Jesuit Torozzi also cited her conversion to Lutheranism as the cause of Battery's madness. Hmm. So it's like, there okay. you go, see? Yeah, she stayed Catholic, she'd be sane and wouldn't be doing all this stuff. So there's a little bit of religious salesmanship going on here. But in any case, it was too late. The uniquely lured motif of a woman bathing in the blood of virgins had already taken hold in the public psyche then and ever since. So once you come up with a piece of storyline like that, it's so evocative in our, in our minds. There's something taboo and erotic and, and horrible about it. Like, that's just a trope that's stuck. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. 
any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Hello, everyone. I'm Steven Buksevich, and this is Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. Well, now let's take a look at the idea of the feasibility of bathing in blood, the realities of it. And could that legend be true? Or is it just something that's just not very practical back then or now? So we're going to look at a few notes here from investigative historian Peter Vronsky and his blog, Serial Killer History, which has all different kinds of subjects, but he's really talking about Elizabeth here and the likelihood of that story being true. And according to Vronsky, it was Michael Wagoner and his book in 1796 called Anthropological Philosophy, who was the first one to take that bloodbathing story and make it widely known. Now, he wasn't the first one to discover it. Yeah, he didn't come up with it. He's no. just the one that put it in into the zeitgeist. He, he, <laughs> he, he, he added did. it to the zeitgeist to get to see it. Yeah, exactly, and made that story very popular as an idea for a skincare regimen, you could say, yes. or an obsession. Yes. And I believe in the Wagoner book, as told by Vronsky here, that's where we hear the story about the chambermaid brushing Elizabeth's hair. Right, in the blood. There's a, there's a tangle. It pulls her hair. It hurts. She's furious. The chambermaid is frightened. Elizabeth strikes her so hard that blood spurts out of her nose or ear somewhere, and it lands on her hand. And that's when she discovers, after wiping the blood away, that her skin seemed to be rejuvenated. Mm-hmm. And from then on, she would routinely bathe in a tub of fresh virginal blood. And that was to preserve all of her skin. And you can also imagine people were thinking she was drinking it too for the internal benefits. Yeah. And there you get your vampire legend starting there. And also from Wagoner, his claims, that's where we also get the reinforcement of the 650 plus young girls murdered for the purpose of this. Now, what Vronsky writes is that there's a problem with this idea in this story itself, because it morphs into different versions. You know, you have the hair combing version. There's another one, as we said before, where the young virgins were held aloft in a bladed cage and the blood would drip down. There's all these variations. You don't really know what's true. And then there's the addition to the legend that Elizabeth then had to move on to aristocratic girls, either because she'd run out of peasant girls or that she then thought, because it wasn't working probably, as the story might go, that she had to move on to more noble blood. And that's when the daughters of the lesser nobility started to go missing. And that's really what got her into trouble because nobody cared about peasant girls at the time. Yeah, and there's some idea that this was a plausible thought process for her because at the time, medical knowledge was extremely limited. It's possible that she actually thought that doing this was really benefiting her skin. It wasn't just for the macabre nature of it. She might have actually thought that there was it was scientific and it was working. <laughs> it could, well, yeah, I mean, it was gruesome, but these were gruesome times. And obviously somebody not in their right mind wouldn't go to those lengths. But if you were rich and powerful like she was, and it's easy to do and nobody's blaming you or, or seeming to care, you're just getting away with it, it might be something that you could do even if you were just uh, sadistic. Another thing that Vronsky points out is that you can't really bathe in blood because it rapidly coagulates into mm-hmm. like this really sticky, thick matter that you wouldn't, it's disgusting, but you, you wouldn't really be able to, it's not your ideal bath. Well, if you let it sit for a while. Yeah. Uh, now there is a scientific idea which may provide an answer to that coagulation early. 
a little bit later on. We'll take a look at that. But for these purposes, in gathering that much blood in a giant tub to be bathing in routinely, it seems in looking at the reality of a large tub of blood that it's probably not likely. But the idea of drinking, bathing in blood, consuming flesh possibly, you can see how many people make that connection to Bram Stoker and his story of Dracula. Well, Vronsky has something to say about that too. Listen to this quote from him. Though there is no definitive proof that Stoker was in fact inspired by Elizabeth, he does illustrate that blood rituals had become so associated with youth that even in 1897 when Stoker wrote Dracula, the idea was already considered normal. On a side note, I am compelled to mention that Western associations with blood and its supernatural properties probably became ingrained in people's minds long before the Countess. The world's most widely read book tells us, quote, Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. That's John chapter 6, verse 54. So there you go. That's the main idea that blood bathing isn't practical. You yeah. really couldn't do it on a large scale, although some aspects of that story might be true. She may have thought that young virginal blood did make her skin look better. As you suggested earlier that the vampire facial, uh, some people believe there is something to that, right? Yes. Yeah. It's your own blood, though, in that case. But, it's your own yes. blood. But what if you don't want to use your own blood? It's better to use the blood of younger people. And that's an idea that may have some weight in the scientific community young blood versus old blood. Yes. So just to kind of wrap up the ideas I stated earlier that I thought was kind of a cool, not a coincidence, but a connection in history. And that was the one that came from Laszlo Kurti's paper. Kurti says that Elizabeth's ancestor, Stefan Bathory, had fought alongside Vlad Dracul in one of his many successful attempts to reclaim the Wallachian throne. And that his namesake, Elizabeth's cousin, became Prince of Transylvania in 1571 and was later elected King of Poland. So that factoid comes from Kurti's paper, but there you go. There's a connection to this family, the Bathory's, and Vlad Dracul. And you know what I think every time the Wallachian throne comes up? Mm -hmm. I think of Eli Wallach, who lived to <laughs> be almost 100. Oh, I, that's is true. Is that a coincidence? I don't know. It's all connected. No, yeah, it's not. maybe well, it's not. Never mind. Maybe not. But he, <laughs> I'm trying to think. Uh, oh, he did. He did play a Hispanic uh, bandito. Yes, he did. Okay, not even close. No, not even close. But a bad guy. Yes. There you go. Tuco. Okay. Yeah. Well, in connection to the likelihood of her doing what she did or was accused of, we can look back at this political and religious argument about a Habsburg Catholic king having it out for Elizabeth and also a cousin also plotting to gain her lands in a Machiavellian kind of way. But if you look at some of the small facts of this case, or who did what, there are some things that do make you wonder. For instance, it was Istvan Magyri, a Lutheran minister who it is believed first lodged the official complaints against Bathory. And this goes against the argument that it was a Roman Catholic plot against the growing tide of Protestantism. Then again, there could have been some Lutheran Calvinist Protestant tensions that fueled the complaints, possibly. So there could have been tensions between the denominations, and do we really know that it was Istvan Magri who launched the first complaints? But if that's true, then it does present a strong argument that it wasn't totally cooked up politically and religiously against her as a ploy. So if you look at it from another angle, it could be said that bribing witnesses and any court officials or merely intimidation like with the testimony of a dying girl found at the castle was easy enough to do. The fact that there was hundreds of sworn testimonies makes you wonder 
if there wasn't something really going on. I mean, there's so much evidence against her. Yeah. So the question is, you know, were they all intimidated by the two notaries to lean towards the bias of an indictment? It seems like a lot of overkill, <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> not, yeah, pardon the expression. Yeah, but I mean, look at it this way. Henry VIII only needed a few confessions mentioning naughty behavior to get rid of his wife, Anne Boleyn. Yeah, I mean, if you look at it that way, if you are the king, you don't really need to go to that much trouble, do you? No. I mean, that's what people are asking or wondering in this case. Yeah, and the, I mean, the physical evidence could have been exaggerated. The, that's true, The bones, sure. yeah. the mutilated corpses, it's hard to know for sure, right. and... Again, like you said, if you're a king, it's really not that hard to get somebody out of the way. Yeah, especially if you're a lesser noble. I mean, you are very powerful, maybe just under the king, but you're not the king. So maybe the king could have gone to an eighth of the trouble. Yeah, for example, he could have said that she was practicing witchcraft or right. found some other way to defame her and get her out of the picture. It's just not that hard especially uh, when you're a king and she is a woman, even though she's a noblewoman. So that there's a lot of things that he could have done instead yeah. of this setting up this whole elaborate, as we said, overkill situation. No, we will get letters, I'm sure, saying that, no, on, on the other hand, she was much too powerful. This is the part of the debate here. This is the meat of the debate. Was she too powerful? Was it too embarrassing? Did the uh, Bathory family and uh, Torzo families, did they have so much influence and power that they could override the king? Obviously, a deal seems to have been struck, as the way it lays out. And in any case, she was imprisoned. It wasn't uncommon to accuse widows of being mm -hmm. witches or being involved in the mysterious deaths of their husbands so that you could get a hold of their holdings or inheritance. And Ferenc's death, her husband, was actually somewhat mysterious, at least at that time. For, you know, well, unknown uh, diseases. Yeah, and, right. When you didn't yeah. really know the exact cause of death, on, depending on the person, it doesn't seem that he died of poisoning, but we don't know. It was a long, slow illness. So well, yeah. Maybe and, she was slowly poisoning him. There are many accounts that say that uh, they were actually very much in love, but he was away a lot. He, you don't know. Yeah. Well, going back to that article where Vice had interviewed author Tony Thorne, the researcher, he had an interesting reply about what he thought of Bathory's guilt. When the interviewer asked Thorne if he thought she was guilty, Thorne said, quote, What's frustrating is that there's no absolute evidence that she committed these crimes. The claim she was bathing in the blood of virgins only appeared in the records a hundred years after her death, and that was from a Catholic priest who revived the story to discredit her. There were no personal letters written between aristocrats talking about her. They all talk about each other, but not her. The more I look into it, the more uncertain it all seems. So that's what he found, and he was the guy that really dug into these records. He's one of uh, two authors I think we can look at. The other one was Kimberly Craft, whose book we mentioned earlier. Did yeah. a lot of research on this, and you can call them both battery scholars. The other thing that he agreed with was what we said a few minutes ago. Why choose mass murder when it's right. so much easier just to say she's practicing witchcraft or yeah. some other much far easier thing to accuse her I think of. it's a very strong point is yeah. that that's a much easier thing to do and just be done with it all. But we're interested in serial killers, you know, in the modern era. There are podcasts just about them in the true crime genre. Yeah. But as a concept... Did people think about serial killers back then? Not really, because people were dying all over the place. This quote from uh, Thorne is actually kind of funny. <laughs> I'm just going to read this real yeah. quick. The idea of murder and cruelty was an everyday fact for them. People were killing each other in taverns with swords. They were mutilated soldiers, wandering, starving all over the countryside. It was a 
horror show, but accusing a woman of sadistic murder was still quite unusual. Yeah, what he's saying is that we look at it in different terms, and we often think about that when we go to, like, ancient accounts, possibly, of strange phenomena in the sky, or ancient aliens, or whatever you're trying to describe, is that we don't have the same terms. It's kind of like the man with the hat, the shadow man, was referred to as the black monk. Yeah. We think of things differently nowadays than we did then. Now we use forensic language and police terms. Back then, they just would have called her like a she-demon. Yeah. <laughs> and so what Thorin is saying is that murder and cruelty was a daily occurrence back then. And another reason I always contend, you don't want to go back in time. One of the other questions that Vice asked Thorne was about Slovakia only just only kind of just now realizing the tourism potential for mm-hmm. the castle where she was imprisoned. And what his response to that was, well, you can't blame him because Slovakia doesn't have much of an internationally known history. So why not exploit the one really spectacular character you've got? One of the other things he goes on to say is that they have there's so many libraries full of records and letters that haven't even been looked at. So mm-hmm. in a way, historically, it's kind of a treasure trove. If you were to go there and locally and yeah. stay there and really drill down on this, you probably would find a lot of fascinating information, not only about Elizabeth Bathory, but a lot of other things that have never been brought to light. Well, as we said at the beginning, it was previously suppressed by the Soviet bloc type leadership and that there's nothing wrong here. We don't like that part of our history. That's all about revolution and and how glorious it was and uplifted the people, but anything really grotesque, they weren't real fond of publicizing, so it wasn't looked at. So again, if this had happened in England, think about this. We know so much about UK history because it's an open society or much more and has been studied so much more thoroughly that this story would be much more popular and in the zeitgeist, as you said, uh, then and now. But even though this has formed so much of our ideas about uh, dark Eastern European horror and Gothic tales, it's not a commonplace name so much here in the West, but it would have been had it been an English or, or Scottish or Irish story or something from more Western Europe. So if you take a look at what Eastern Europe has, well, Romania has Dracula. Right. And Hungary has Bathory. But who's the more famous of the two? The more fictional character? Because we can thank Bram Stoker a lot for that. And that it's an actual morphing of somebody who is historical with a lot of folklore tied around that, just to make it uh, goose it up a little, jazz it up. Yeah. Well, now we should take a look at a paper I thought was very cool and, and informative here. Didn't read all of it, but at least the first part, which addressed the argument that was made previously as a counter argument here. And this was found by ARC member Rebecca. And what it is, it's a Master of Science thesis titled No Blood in the Water, The Legal and Gender Conspiracies Against Countess Elizabeth Battery in Historical Context. And this is by Rachel Lee Bledsaw of Illinois State University. And this paper basically argues against the likelihood of a political, religious, or gender conspiracy aimed at battery. This is her thesis, uh, that Rachel Lee Bledsaw's thesis for her Master of Science degree, and this is available online publicly, so it's pretty pretty fascinating. Please read the abstract for us, won't you? Okay. This thesis explains and discusses the conspiracies reported against the Hungarian noblewoman, Countess Elizabeth Bathory, regarding her confinement 
and the arrest of her accomplices in December 1610. The conspiracies state that the Countess was unjustly targeted and charged not because she was guilty of the deaths of several dozen girls from torture, but because she represented a threat to the Habsburg Empire due to her wealth, her political influence, and her widowhood. This thesis explores the rationality of these two conspiracies using historical context regarding the position of noble women in Central and Eastern Europe and the function and use of the early modern judicial system. It concludes that there was no gender-based conspiracy against the countess because early modern Hungary did not see wealthy widows as a threat. Battery did not seriously violate her expected roles and duties while a wife, widow, or a mother, and at her arrest had only a fraction of the power and wealth she held previously. Mm. Additionally, the trial against her accomplices was conducted under standard by early modern judicial procedures, including the use of torture to obtain a confession. And by the way, we have a link to this thesis, which is available publicly on the internet that you can uh, check out if you want to read it yourself in right. the show notes. Yeah. Her last point, though, if you if you think about it, it's not debating the eff efficacy of getting confessions from torture. What it's saying is that no extraordinary measures were taken of the time against Elizabeth. Like that was pretty standard how everybody got the same confessions. And, and that's basically how the legal system operated back in those days. It wasn't a special railroading of sorts. It seemed to be pretty standard operating procedure for somebody found or accused of a crime like that. So this is also from Rachel Bledsaw's introduction, stating the purpose of the paper here. The main purpose of this thesis will be to discuss Countess Elizabeth Battery within a historical and cultural framework rather than the sensationalist true crime and occult lenses through which she was viewed in previous works. Specifically, it will reject arguments that Battery was targeted for persecution because she was a wealthy and powerful widow. Contemporary and modern works on the construction of womanhood in Eastern Europe counter this perception. The fear of powerful single women and widows was far more present in Western Europe than in the East. Widows were an accepted part of life, indeed, the best time of a woman's life particularly if she were wealthy and noble. Hmm. Finally, it will also discredit the long-held belief that the investigation of Battery and the trial of her four accomplices was illegal or in any way similar to the show trials of the communist era. Letters between family members and Palatine Thurzo revealed a preceding argument to avert a trial. This was to avoid actual sentencing rather than a political conspiracy to deprive her of her noble rights. Torzo gathered evidence according to the early modern Hungarian legal code, up to and including his use of torture to gain a confession. The modern understanding of torture within the early modern justice system was skewed by its excessive use during witch hunts and religious persecutions. The use of judicial torture was considered necessary and expected to ensure a proper trial under the inquisitional system. Mm. So standard the good operating old days. <laughs> that's what she's saying, basically. <laughs> standard operating procedure, there does not seem to be, at least to her research, any kind of conspiracy against her. That's just the way it is, and she probably did something bad. I wonder, like, especially since this was a thesis, it'd be interesting to find out if Rachel B. Bledsaw went into this already knowing or had somehow otherwise discovered this particular position was going to come out if she did the research. Oh, yeah. You know, uh, or if she went like, was it the point of her thesis and then she dug around and, and determined it? Or I'm not saying I'm trying to identify confirmation bias here. Mm -hmm. when I, I'm wondering what made her choose this subject because had she just affirmed 
the conspiracy, it it might not have been as interesting of a thesis. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, so so yeah. I wonder if in the course of her degree or the pursuit of her degree, she stumbled across other information that pointed to the idea that, no, she was in fact guilty and all this conspiracy oh, talk I, is yes. um, out of line. You well, know? it seems to be more, the background of the paper seems to be more from the historical, judicial and political aspect right. of it. And also social in regards to Eastern Europe versus Western Europe. Right. And how do you line those two up? Because yes, we have more of a Western European idea and mentality because of our heritage here and that carrying over to the Americas. Right. So we're putting our filter on a culture that it doesn't necessarily have our filters with, with regard to how widows might have been perceived at that time and that yeah, sort of thing. Yeah, we're right. Exactly yeah. how we may have dealt with that in the 16th and 17th centuries and how those attitudes may have been different in that same time period in Eastern Europe yeah. and in the Slavic countries. So a fascinating take on this. And I'm going to guess that she's a scholar of the entire breadth of this region's history and places this particular story within that knowledge, research, and context. All right, this is a little bit of one of our patented tangents, which we've, I think we've done a lot better at curbing those. No, no, they're all some way related. Well, not totally tangents. I'm not talking about a sandwich I had at lunch, unless that sandwich was directly related to this. Uh, like, yes. Like the roast beef was especially bloody or something. Yeah, yeah. I, that's where I was going to go. You oh, went okay. right to it, of oh, course. Okay. Talk about dad jokes. Um, so <laughs> anyway, this is pretty fascinating. You know how we talked about what's the likelihood that you can actually use blood or a blood bath from especially from young blood to right. rejuvenate your skin or your body on the whole well back to your vampire facial is there any component about blood that it has those properties and is there any difference between the blood of old people and young people is there any worth in a young person's blood well, to that point, I want to mention one of the new members to the ARC or the Astonishing Research Corps. Mm. Her name is Ella, and she has expertise. She is professionally involved in the science associated with this. So this is pretty fascinating. I want to read what she posted in the Research Corps group. Quote, I'm putting this in the theory section, but it's almost <laughs> more of a fun fact, I think. Mm. I used to work in a lab that studies leukemia, and I always found the story of Elizabeth Battery fascinating from a scientific perspective. While, as was pointed out here and elsewhere, bathing in the blood of younger girls is not only highly impractical, trust me, she says, a tube of blood clots within an hour, if not continuously rocked, and also unlikely to have much effect to being applied topically, I want to point out a few actual scientific differences between old and new blood. Mm. The one most relevant to me, as someone who used to work on leukemia, is something called clonal hemotopoiesis. Essentially, doctors around the world started to notice in elderly patients that their blood cells had one or two mutations that are normally seen in leukemia patients. Now, this was weird because these patients did not actually have leukemia. Typically, leukemia cells have anywhere from four to ten mutations, but these patients only had one or two of these really dangerous and scary cancer mutations. This led to a theory that these cells that acquire these mutations become more fit the normal blood cells and expand at a faster rate. If they get more mutations, they can eventually develop into cancer or leukemia. While it is yet to be conclusively proven that clonal hemotopiesis always leads to cancer, several large-scale studies in Europe do seem to hint at that trend. Pretty much anyone over 70 is very likely to have clonal hemotopiesis. 
The interest now is in seeing if you can screen patients with clonal hematopoiesis <laughs> and predict if they're going to develop leukemia. Not all patients do. Some live with these one or two mutations and die of natural causes, so it's not a guaranteed thing. So if you can do the screening, then maybe those that will develop leukemia can be treated earlier. That is a current goal in this field. So ignoring all the other things found in blood, all the other chemicals and signaling molecules that may contribute to aging, the blood itself might be different in elderly people than in younger individuals who haven't yet lived long enough to develop those mutations. Ella then mentions, and I thought this was pretty amazing, this company Ambrosia, which we'll have a link to this also in our show notes. Here's an article about it uh, from Business Insider. I'm not going to read the whole article, but just listen to this headline. A controversial startup that charges $8,000 to fill your veins with young blood now claims to be up and running in five cities across the U.S., the startup called Ambrosia charges $8,000 to fill your veins with the blood of young people and is now accepting PayPal payments for the procedure online. Jesse Carmazin, a Stanford graduate who founded Ambrosia, told Business Insider this week that the company was up and running in five U.S. cities. It recently completed its first clinical trial designed to address the benefits of the procedure, but has yet to publish those results. Carmazin previously told Business Insider the company wanted to open the first clinic in New York City, but that didn't happen. We have a link to this article. This is actually from January of 2019. So mm. uh, it's pretty interesting. Ella goes on to say this company, Ambrosia, is literally getting young people to donate their blood and transplanting their plasma to older patients. Weird and freaky. Personally, I don't buy it. They are said to have done a clinical trial, but they haven't yet published the results, as I just read. From a scientific standpoint, it seems better to first prove that there is a benefit and pick a specific problem that this procedure is supposed to address. Then I would isolate the specific component of the young blood, if there is one, that helps with the specific problem, not just aging that's way too broad, and then use that as a treatment. This isn't super risky, but I'm skeptical of its benefit. Still, it made me think of the Elizabeth Bathory story mm -hmm. when I read it. She goes on to say she wants to point out that even that article cited the work of Tony weiss Corre, if I'm saying that right, a scientist at Stanford, and he did an experiment where he parabiosed, connecting the circulatory systems of a young mouse to an old mouse, and saw some neurological benefits in the old mouse. They also did some transplants of plasma and blood and measured the mice in several conditions. Uh, we have a link to the article about this. I want to point out that, first of all, this is in mice, not humans, and I can name hundreds of cases where what is observed in a mouse model does not transfer to human patients, in some cases with fatal results. Secondly, while statistically significant, the results are not dramatic nor curative. A paper from this group just came out trying to assess the feasibility of transplanting young plasma to human Alzheimer's patients. We have a link to that as well. They examined nine Alzheimer's patients with mild to moderate disease, trying to prove that they could tolerate plasma infusions from young donors. Importantly, the goal of the study was not to see if there was any benefits to the transplant, just that it could be done and tolerated by the patient safely. They again cite the benefit observed in mice, but I think that is a very blunt approach and approach it with caution. Not that it isn't safe, but that it might not be effective, and until the mystery component X that gives the neurological benefit is isolated, I think it risks not working every time. Composition can vary from donor to donor, and I don't know if I buy into the idea that all young people have the same differences in blood from old people. And also, just to clarify, these are two different topics. 
clonal hematopoiesis has nothing to do with Alzheimer's or the blood donation company. If you wanted to fix that, you would probably have to do bone marrow transplants, and that's surgery with its own risks, and it's usually reserved for full-blown cancer patients. Plasma does not contain blood cells. It is the liquid part of the blood in which red blood cells, white blood cells, and platelets are suspended. Plasma does contain signaling molecules like hormones, metabolites, waste, and anything else carried by the blood. It is a mix of things, and I would be really interested in whether it proves beneficial in the clinical trials. Hmm. If, this is where, <laughs> this is pretty fascinating, if Elizabeth Battery had access to a centrifuge, she could easily extract the plasma and separate it from the blood cells. If she then infused it through an intravenous injection and was suffering from neurological disease, and the mouse experiment absolutely and 100% translated to humans, and she didn't want to change her aging appearance but just improve the neurological symptoms, then maybe, just maybe, it would work. At least that's the gamble people at Ambrosia are apparently willing to make. Well, there you go. So, Probably, and by the way, I just want yeah. to say clearly, this is Ella's opinion, and it's it's clear she's making it clear that it's an opinion from her experience in the field and yes. ours. We're, this is not supposed to be a medical evaluation. We're no. just make, having discussion here. But it's very fascinating. No, because there's always a philosophical and moral implication to a lot of procedures in medicine, which we also do not want to get into. Because as Ella says, scientists themselves like to get into debates and philosophical discussions about the moral implications of certain procedures and trends and new discoveries. And she talks about a paper which discusses the ethical issues, because there are some things that we should think about, all of us, because these are the procedures that are, these things are happening to. Yeah. It's not just scientists in a lab. Eventually, people may want to have this done to themselves. But one of them is an ethical consideration that is aging something that needs to be treated. Yeah. Should we avoid it at all costs or try and reverse it as much as possible? Well, you know, to make my 5,000th movie reference in this battery mm. series, I would like to cite the title of the song from Highlander. <laughs> Actually, I don't know if it's a title, oh. but how it opens it. I, who wants to live forever? <laughs> I mean, who <laughs> wants to live forever? Come well, on. Except for the Count of St. Germain. Yeah, well, at that Mr. point, Pollock. though, I mean, just think how tired you are now. Do you want that to go on for another six centuries? Or is it all perception? I'm not complaining about being tired. What I are you see. trying to say? As one's body breaks down, you do realize it'd be nice to have some youthful, more youthful components to it. Anyway, so... Well, that, I think there's, like, some uh, pill you can take. I've seen that guy who's, like, 20 years older than me, but he's got, like, a six-pack. There's, like, something that you <laughs> right. can take and then get that back. But I, I'd prefer uh, to go the natural way. Stay in pretty good health right up until the very end and then have a sharp decline rather than a slow, drawn-out decline over 30 years, which is we what don't I'm, get to, I'm experiencing that. Right yeah, now. we don't get to choose, right? So getting back to the discussion of... Did she really do all this stuff? Was she railroaded? Was this a normal investigation under these times? And basically, how guilty is she? So here's something I found that was interesting. It's actually just a review of Tony Thorne's book from the Goodreads website. And there was one reviewer, Daryl, doing a pretty good job, I thought, of summarizing a lot of the main points in the book and also summarizing the main points of her defense in that we may be reading this all wrong and... We should all reconsider Battery's actual guilt. To be clear, we know absolutely nothing about Daryl or his background or level <laughs> no. of expertise, right? Or even how accurate this is. <laughs> now, what it, what it is, is I, I read these comments and it's like, well, these... It seem sounds to be a, right. Well, it's, it's a summary. <laughs> yeah, it is a summary of the points. As you go and read through this from different websites and different viewpoints, some of Tony Thorne's arguments here is that these do seem to be some of the bullet points against her guilt. 
and reporting her actual innocence in this legendary crime spree, you could say. Daryl's argument is that it's possible, perhaps, to bathe in blood, that it would not coagulate so quickly because of something called fibrinolysin, which is an enzyme derived from plasma of bovine origin or extracted from cultures of certain bacteria, and it's used locally. And basically, uh, Daryl's argument here is that during a violent death or the stress of a sudden and violent death, the body causes the overproduction of fibrinolysin, which is an anticoagulant. So he's saying like, well, maybe if you tortured somebody to death, maybe their blood due to this enzyme is going to keep it more liquid. But getting back to these other counter arguments against her guilt, the one that we covered before is that with her expected duties as a medieval noblewoman, and especially the wife of a count of the area, and he's off to war, her duties would include things that were normally practiced as quote-unquote medicine back in the day by male doctors. But them being off to war themselves to treat injured soldiers, what's left around the area for the rest of them there, she would have to step up and give her herbal remedies and knowledge of the medicine of the time in practice to the people. And that's something that you do hear about with Elizabeth, that she did practice these kind of folk remedies, or at least her knowledge. And again, she was a very intelligent woman but maybe these practices of medicine, like bloodletting, and some of these medieval practices could be seen as torture if you didn't know what she was doing. My reasoning, however, though, is that if you were of the day, the people of the day, yes, some of these practices were gruesome, and of course there's no painkiller, so people are screaming out in pain, or they're biting on a leather thong from the pain, or the practices are just barbaric by today's standards. The people back then would know the difference between a cure and torture, and especially somebody who was educated like Torzo coming in and seeing that happening in the castle. He would know the difference between the healing arts and torture techniques, probably having dealt out some torture techniques himself. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. This is Johanna. And this is Linnea from Arsenic Soap. Thank you for listening to Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. And speaking of creative punishments, we're now at a section here where there is another argument that is put forth to kind of defend Elizabeth's actions of the day in that, yes, they were creative punishments, as she is said to have doled out, but not all that unusual. Right. Judicially, it's funny. 
these stories about her sort of remind me of those judges that make the perpetrator hold a sign up <laughs> at an intersection for five days or whatever. That's right, maybe right. that's all that's, you know, in her mind. Well, you know, you did this. So whatever. It's a little bit. Uh, well, that's a lot. To, yes. Holding I, stuff here to, that might embarrass you. That That's a far better well, embarrassment. outcome yeah, than versus, what we're going to see. Yeah. Uh, as we said in one oh, way back in one uh, Great Courses Plus ad, uh, I believe the Hammurabi had a punishment that if a uh, architect had built you a house and the house collapsed on your family, a house was to be constructed and that and person collapsed would, on and, the architect. Yeah, because <laughs> it's like, hey, fair is fair or an eye for an eye. But the purpose back then is that they didn't have any jails. That punishment, that whatever was decided, had to be fitting to everybody and final. Yeah, and for the record, I don't think I could work harder than I would work on a house <laughs> under those circumstances yeah. that I don't want to fall down on people because then right. it's going to fall on me right. or, or my family. Well, those creative punishments, again, that's one argument where uh, it was said that Elizabeth, if she caught a, a maidservant stealing coins, she would heat up coins and make them hold them, you know, yeah. burn your hands. But maybe you wouldn't do it again. And it so didn't stop like there, though. Some primitive form of behavioral therapy. Aversion therapy. We're going to traumatize yes, you therapy. on the idea. Aversion <laughs> therapy. We're going to traumatize you with the idea of holding these coins. Right. Well, that's the argument, though, is that back then it was, a, it was a really rough and brutal time. The nobility, if they beat a servant to death, it wasn't even really that big of a deal, just considered an accident. There's a lot of parallels here to slavery. Of know? course. You can get away yeah. with a lot. Yeah, yeah. Whoever's holding the torture device holds all the power, you can get away with whatever. And generally that's people who are of nobility or money. Yeah. And they continue to get away with stuff today, but it's a slightly different version. But that's what we're trying to compare here is even by our standards now or by standards then was what she was doing considered really grotesquely cruel. Yeah. And again, that argument here is that, well, not really, you know, so it seems to be kind of an exaggeration that these tortures that she, you know, these punishments, excuse me, that she did were not all that horrible considering the time. And one thing in the review of these arguments is a story that's brought up called the Peasant King of Hungary. And I looked this up and there are some direct parallels to Elizabeth, much more than I thought. This story being an example of just how cruel the times were and talking about hot metal. So I looked this up and it's a pretty fascinating little historical snippet, a story, and brutal. So again, if you're sensitive or there's sensitive ears listening, you might want to skip the latter part of this, and we'll tell you when we get to that section here, describing the brutalities of the day. And I thought there were some interesting connections between this historical story and Elizabeth's story, because this will be the story of that peasant uprising in Hungary, and it demonstrates how brutal these times were in just a generation or two before Elizabeth. Because these are the conditions and the stories that she would have grown up with herself. And it may inform us as to why she did what she's accused of, or at least what the reality of 16th century Hungary actually was. Now, I think we're just going to draw directly from the Wikipedia entry. And we just made some edits <laughs> to cull it down so it's a little more digestible. But basically, yes, this is from the entry directly here. Well, in 1514, George Doja, or George C.K., which is S-Z-E-K-E-L-Y, but he's mostly known as Yorsh Doja. He was a CK military man or mercenary, and by some accounts, people say a nobleman, from Transylvania in the Kingdom of Hungary, and he led a peasant's revolt against the kingdom's landed nobility. Now, remember, Elizabeth was born in about 1560 and died in 1614, 
This revolt took place in 1514. So again, if you do the math. These events are taking place about 100 years before she died. After, yes, it, after being imprisoned for four years that's at, at right. the castle. Yeah. That's right. Okay. So I think it's very likely that she knew this story growing up because it involves her family. Right, it involves in her way. family. And yeah. this points to the practices of the time and the cultural zeitgeist and what she grew up. Not only did she grow up in a time that this stuff was going on, she was in a privileged version of that because she was nobility. Right. Yeah. So my, my point is that, you know, unlike now where somebody watches a movie and 20 minutes later, there's a new one to stream and nobody remembers anything. These are legendary and again, involves her family. And this was a big deal at the time. Well, here's the timeline of the story here. In the year 1514, the Hungarian chancellor, Tamaj Bakots, had returned from the Holy See with a papal bull issued by Leo X, which authorized a crusade against the Ottomans. Remember, that's yes. all been going on for a long time now. Within a few weeks, Doja had gathered an army of some 40,000 of the lowest-ranking groups of medieval society, consisting, for the most parts, of peasants, wandering students, friars, parish priests. They assembled in their counties, and by the time he had provided them with some military training, they began to air the grievances of their status, because no measures had been taken to supply these voluntary crusaders with food or clothing. Eey. So, I mean, they're just standing around like, well, what are we doing now? You know, yeah. with a little bit of training, and that's about it. Well, as harvest time approached, the landlords commanded them to return to reap the fields, of course, because now things are just going to rot in the fields. And on their refusing to do so, proceeded to maltreat the wives and families and set their armed retainers upon the local peasantry. So the landowners are getting upset. These guys have taken off and no one's here to do the work. Well, the volunteers became increasingly angry at the failure of the nobility to provide military leadership, which was the original and primary function of the nobility and the justification for its higher status in society. And that, okay, if you're going to enjoy this higher status, then you have to provide some leadership. That's what we're looking to you for. The rest of us are going to work or pray. The rebellious anti-landlord sentiment of these crusaders became apparent during their march across the great Hungarian plain. And Tomáš Bakots canceled the campaign. So he was like, okay, we're done here. It's over. Go home. And the movement was thus diverted from its original object, and the peasants and their leaders began a war of vengeance against the landlords. So over the course of the summer, Doja had several military successes, seizing three fortresses, but he was quickly losing control of the fighters under his command. And the rebellion became more dangerous when the towns joined on the side of the peasants and spread quickly in the Magyar provinces, where hundreds of manor houses and castles were burnt and thousands of the gentry killed by impalement, crucifixion, and other methods. Right. Two really, really horrible things right now. I'm not going to describe impalement. Just look it up. It's really awful. It's one of the most awful things you can think of. Look up Vlad Dracul. No, that's what I'm saying. That's uh, kind of the order of the day, the fashion of the day here. And a lot of people were doing it. So in reaction to all this, the papal bull was revoked and King Vladislaus II issued a proclamation commanding the peasantry to return to their homes under the pain of death. But by this time, the uprising had attained the dimensions of a revolution. All the vassals of the kingdom were called out against it. Meanwhile, Doja had captured the city and the fortress of Chonad, today's Senad, I think. And then he signaled his victory by impaling the bishop and the castellan. 
So Doja himself was doing some pretty nasty things. I had to look this up when we started this episode. What is a castellan again? Oh, that is, that is basically the manager of a castle. Right. Think of it. Yeah, right. The, the person who has been put in charge is an official to run the castle. Okay. I'm not sure if they have to be nobility, but they are certainly a trusted person to run the affairs. Can you imagine impalement? Uh, no. Again, just... if you look that up, it's just the most... Horrible. Yeah. Because here's the other thing. You think you would die, but there are methods of doing it. I read one account where a guy was alive for six days. Ugh. Here's my point about the past and history. The most horrible things you could possibly imagine have already been done to people by other people. There's nothing new under the sun. This uh, could be why no one has shown up here uh, in a time machine, <laughs> yeah. uh, even to date, because everything's better then. Why come back <laughs> mm. <laughs> to now? That's my point. Or that, then, yeah. yeah. I know we, mm. we all think the time we're in is, is awful and it's hard to get through and it's all a personal perspective, but just go back and read some history and yeah. you'll see how tough people had it back then. And especially in this era, as we're about to see, this is not the worst of it. Right. So getting back to the timeline of this story, just taken directly from the wiki entry here, Doja was back at Arad, which is a location of a fortress that he captured. He captured the Lord Treasurer, Istvan Talegdi, and he was seized and he was tortured to death. So we're building up a story here where Doja is a brutal guy himself. Right. And why is Doja significant to our story? We're about to get to that. So by this point... Doja had become a political liability. He was scoring some victories militarily, and he was kind of loose and reckless, but also he was disturbing the entire place. With He's becoming a problem. Role. Yeah, so he had to be put down here, and eventually he was routed by an army of 20,000 men led by two guys, John Zapulyar and Istvan Batory. Aha. Last name sound familiar? Yes, it does. Okay, well, John Zapolyar was the king of Hungary at some point, as John I, and he was also voivode of Transylvania, and I just stuck that in there because I know how much you love the word voivode. It's such a weird word. <laughs> I, I do I like do, it. I, I do believe we're pronouncing it correctly, so don't worry about that. I'm going right. to stand behind it. Not convinced. So the other guy, Istvan, was also known as Stephen VIII Bathory, and he was Elizabeth Bathory's grandfather. His daughter was Anna Bathory. So basically, Istvan, or Stephen, was Elizabeth's grandfather on her mother's side. So she's related directly to this story we're about right. to tell you here. So what you're saying is that the king of Hungary and her grandfather are the two guys that put a stop to Doja's activities. Yes, militarily. And these were two of the most powerful guys in the region then and later. And again, remember, Elizabeth was born in 1560. This revolt happened in 1514. I've heard that generations are calculated by 30, 33 years or so. Yeah. This is basically a generation or two, I guess, before Elizabeth was born. And importantly, especially as when we get to this part that's coming up, this is part of her family's legacy. Yeah, that's my point in bringing this up. Which that, is eclipsed yeah. by what happened with her. But what you got to realize is a lot of stuff happened in her family before she came along. Oh, of course. No, no. Yeah. These are the biggest names. And of course, history is about powerful, brutal people doing awful things a lot of the time. Yeah. As the rulers. She certainly had her place in that. But this is an interesting and important historical story to the Kingdom of Hungary at the time. And I thought very worthwhile because there are shades of what happened then and what happened when she was around. Now, here's your other trigger warning, folks. Anybody who is very sensitive to these kinds of things should probably tune out now for the next section here. Because this is going to be a, some uh, intense torture descriptions. Descriptions of tortures, but it's necessary 
I believe, to go over because you'll hear some recurring themes. After George Doja was captured, after that battle, he was condemned to sit on a smoldering, heated iron throne and forced to wear a heated iron crown and scepter, which was to mock his ambition to be king. While he was suffering, a procession of nine fellow rebels who had been starved beforehand were led out to this throne. In the lead was Doja's younger brother, Gerge, who was cut in three despite Doja asking for Gerge to be spared. Next, executioners removed some pliers from a fire and forced them into Doja's skin. After tearing his flesh, the remaining rebels were ordered to bite spots where the hot pliers had been inserted and to swallow the flesh. The three or four who refused were simply cut up, prompting the others to comply. In the end, Doja died from the ordeal, while the rebels who obeyed were released and left alone. Mm, but left to live with that horrible story. Also, like, why do you decide, I mean, we're going to kill this one horribly, then we're going to let these people completely go? Because they complied, I guess, and they did They did the awful but act of... But plenty of people uh, comply that still get killed. So that's true. It's, it's just kind of arbitrary. If I comply, they're going to let me go? I don't know. You don't or know. Or they're going to cut me in three. Generally, as these stories go, you comply, and then you still die a horrible death, kind of like testifying against Elizabeth Battery and you still get burned at the stake. Yeah. And after they've chopped your fingers off. Well, according to Wikipedia, the revolt was repressed, but 70,000 peasants were tortured. Yorge's execution and the brutal suppression of the peasants greatly aided the 1526 Ottoman invasion as the Hungarians were no longer a politically united people. Yeah, it messed them up. Divide and conquer. Uh, the thing is, the they're also trying to battle the Ottomans here, and yeah. they have this internal strife going on. It's a very tumultuous area, and you have the constant threat of a powerful invading force coming at you. And it's interesting because it's so much easier to conquer divided people. Well, exactly. And I also made you read the horrible tortures. Yeah, thanks, well, for, <laughs> thanks for putting that section for me. Scott yeah. reads this. Well, George Doja, though, is remembered as both a Christian martyr and a dangerous criminal. Hmm. Because, again, he was impaling people. Yeah. But here's a little tidbit I thought you might find interesting. Today, on the side of the martyrdom of the hot throne as it's known, uh, he martyred himself, there is a statue of the Virgin Mary, because according to the legend, during George Doja's torture, some monks saw in his ear the image of Mary. Hmm. They got close enough to look at his ear? I think around the ear area, not in the ear canal. Huh. Sometimes it's around the head. That's a common thing. I think it was St. Eustace. There's two stories of uh, two different Eustaces, but there was a cross. Hmm. Well, the reason for that little history lesson is that, yes, it's not only, you know, interesting, but it shows the general brutality of the late medieval period, and especially of the region of the Kingdom of Hungary. And it would have been a brutality that Elizabeth would be familiar with from childhood. And this is not to say that Eastern Europe was any worse than Western Europe or other countries. Brutality and torture are global. But with regards to Elizabeth, some say that stories of this sort of brutality and possibly witnessing it from her close relatives doling out cruel punishments is what prompted Elizabeth to do the same in adulthood. But the question here is, are the accusations of torture against Elizabeth just figments of the imagination of the accusers having been familiar with those stories from the previous generation? Or were the tortures committed by her family members, in this case, her own grandfather against Doja, inspiration for Elizabeth? You know what I'm saying? Like, she remembered yeah. these stories like, well, that's what grandpops did, so 
Granddaddy, uh, you know, he was famous for that. Very powerful man. And for her, it's, it's just normal. Is it just it normal? It could be normal. But in any case, I don't care about the argument that like, oh, that's just what happened during the day. That's still pretty cruel and unusual because these two stories, using red hot tongs and pliers to tear off the flesh, then the eating of the flesh, the cannibalism aspect of it, pretty similar to what Elizabeth was accused of. In fact, actually, that was some of the things that she was accused of, uh, tearing flesh with hot tongs. Right. So her story has parallels to what happened to Doja after he was captured by her grandfather. Yeah. I thought that was an interesting parallel and maybe part of the reason, maybe there's a clue there. Again, the other part being that maybe that was just in the imaginations of the people at the time. And when they were pressed to give some awful testimony, they remembered what her grandfather had been doing. Or on the other hand, maybe it was her inspiration. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, this is Johanna. And this is Linnea from Arsenic Soap. And when we're not conjuring friendly spirits... Or chasing after the Mothman with butterfly nets... We, we listen, listen to Astonishing Legends! Now let's get back to the show. <laughs> okay, so now we're going to take a look at the ties to Elizabeth's story and folklore. And specifically folklore of the region. Because they definitely seem to be intertwined, like a lot of these old stories are. Going back far enough, the stories borrow from mythology sometimes and create their own. And that's what we end up with today. So here's a thought on the vampire aspect of it from an article on the vamped.org site titled Elizabeth Battery's Bloodbath, Separating Myth from Reality by Romina Nicolades. And essentially one of the ideas about the connection between Elizabeth and vampirism is that, yes, it's, it's nice and seductive to believe that her story inspired Bram Stoker's Dracula and arguably the best known vampire story ever. And it's also a bit ironic that that story was created by a Jesuit priest rather than her actual real story and whatever was known. But whatever the case is, with the vampire myth as we know it today, which is, you know, the unaging eternal creature caught somewhere between life and death. What that story is, is a mixture of folklore, history, uh, misinterpretation, and our own need to understand our mystical surroundings. And all of this is very attractive to the people who love vampire stories in that, you know, youth is fleeting. And in order to acquire it, you sell your soul, but there is a terrible price to be paid for fleeting beauty. 
So in any case, Elizabeth's connection to this vampiric aspect does make her a supernatural character in a lot of ways, because you wonder, okay, if you want to go uh, the folkloric route, did she sell her soul to the devil? Was she in league with the devil? And, and that's right. how she got her beauty. And until her comeuppance came up, her comeuppance came up. Yeah, yeah. well said. Okay. Well said. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So why don't you tell us about some of the connections to folklore and the purported Elizabeth Bathory story? Okay, for this particular section, I want to go back to our Elizabeth, one of our newer members of the Astonishing Research Corps, who has compiled some information about Elizabeth Bathory. So we're going to sum up a couple of points that she made here. She mostly took this information from Tony Thorne's book, Countess Dracula, The Life and Times of Elizabeth Bathory, The Blood Countess, which, by the way, is available on Kindle. Mm -hmm. You can get it uh, just with one click. Also, you know, Tony Thorne wrote Children of the Night of Vampires and Vampirism, mm -hmm. which is also very appropriate to this lore right here. Elizabeth from the Astonishing Research Corps says the following about Elizabeth Bathory's connection to the Transylvanian fairy queen Domna Xenolor, which, if I'm not saying right... There's nothing I can do about it. <laughs> hey, what's uh, a difference between one M or an N here and there? Uh, yes. Okay. Uh, Doamna? Domna? Domna? Pretty Zinalor. close. Okay. Yeah. There are parallels between how Elizabeth Batori is portrayed and the local legend of the fairy queen Doamna Xenolor. Domna Xenolor appears to be the Romanian manifestation of the cult of Artemis, and these cults all have several things in common. They are focused on a beautiful but cruel queen who practices powerful and dangerous dark magic. She is accompanied by her faithful women, sometimes crones, who help her prepare her sorcery, including by luring in young innocent women to fuel the spells. Thorne also notes parallels between the Magyar fairies of the region and the nearby Slavonic fairies, Vile, who originated from the souls of virgin girls. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of parallels there. That's pretty fascinating. There is also apparently a mythical ancestry of the Batteries. Elizabeth writes, The Battery family claimed a mythological ancestry that included various famous heroes, but most notable is Vid Battery, who was said to have slain a dragon with a mace in the Echhead Marshes, hence the family coat of arms of three dragon's teeth surrounded by a dragon biting its own tail. Thorne suggests the coat of arms more likely comes from the Order of St. George. Interestingly enough, there's a connection to Vlad the Impaler there. Mm -hmm. His family members were of the Order of St. George, and this order was what the later Order of the Dragon was modeled on. The Order of the Dragon is where Vlad II Dracul, Vlad the Impaler's father, took his name from. Relating to witchcraft and the batteries, our Elizabeth is quoting here most likely Tony, I believe. Mm -hmm. Elizabeth Battery was not the last of her family to be accused of witchcraft. Elizabeth's niece, Anna Battery was arrested four times on charges of witchcraft. She was accused variously of bewitching her enemy, Prince Gabor Bethlen, to dance naked with her, committing incest with her brother, murdering her son, who was alive and well at the time of the accusation, and consorting with other witches. Amazingly, she was not killed. After the first three trials, Prince Bethlen took hold of her properties and wealth, as with Elizabeth, no doubt, a motivator to the allegations, and she fled to Poland. Remarkably, she came back to Transylvania later after Prince Bethlen died in 1636 to try and get her properties back, but was just tried again for witchcraft. Mm. 
Again, she survived. The trial was inconclusive, which actually happened more often than you'd think in medieval witchcraft trials. And she is presumed to have died in penury sometime after 1640. Well, see, there you go. That's Tony Thorne's uh, earlier comment during his interview. was like, why not just charge Elizabeth yes. with witchcraft and stick her away, or at least imprison her to where she can't put up much of a fight, especially after her husband, Ferenc, had died. And it would be much easier to do that with plenty of accusations and hearsay and all that to probably make it stick. But instead, you do a mass murder trial. Yes. And here's another aspect which is interesting if you look at the ancient Greek definitions of vampirism and female owl demons or the vampire in general. The word for it for the region would be strigoi or strigoitsa for the female vampire version of that. That name derives its etymology from the ancient Greek Stryges, which is a female owl demon that likes to disembowel and eat humans. Interestingly enough, if you go back to the ancient Greek version, as she says, one of the things to ward off a Stryges was garlic. So there's your garlic vampire connection, although garlic wards off a lot of stuff. But that might have been a connection between the vampire lore and garlic, uh, which we so closely associate with the uh, Dracula lore. And Stryges were closely associated with magic and witchcraft. And then there's another ancient Greek mythological connection here to the Lamia. And the definition of Lamia from Merriam-Webster here is a female demon, a vampire. And the description for Lamia goes as, according to Greek mythology, Lamia was a queen of Libya who was beloved by Zeus. When Hera, Zeus's wife, robbed Lamia of her children from this union, Lamia killed every child she could get into her power. Stories were also told of a fiend named Lamia, who, in the form of a beautiful woman, seduced young men in order to devour them, and also sucked the blood of children. Such nightmarish legends compelled John Keats and many other writers before and after him to write their own tales of Lamia, which still haunt and terrify those souls who dare read them. Well, that's pretty dramatic from Merriam-Webster, but there you go. So there are connections to the female version of the vampire and vampire lore of the region. All right, one of the last things I think we should talk about before we get to our final conclusions here is how Elizabeth Battery has become an iconic representation of monstrous behavior and of a monstrous person. Even if you've never heard the name here in the West out there, a lot of people haven't who are in Western Europe even, or the States or maybe even Eastern Europe, those who are younger and don't remember her. But everything we've been talking about fits into this trope of the monstrous, murderous woman who is alluring, bloodthirsty, possibly cannibalistic, vampiric, all these things, and represents so many things that are taboo to most societies. <laughs> most people frown upon this kind of stuff. But if I were to say to you, what do you picture when you think of Count Dracula and Transylvania and all these, Bela Lugosi, all these things. It's an image that pops up of this Eastern European Gothic nature and something of the monstrous because that's where monsters come from. And that's where Elizabeth Bathory comes from. And why? Why is that? Well, there's an academic paper that we mentioned earlier by Laszlo Curti, and it's called The Symbolic Construction of the Monstrous, the Elizabeth Bathory Story. And Cortes from the University of Mishkolts in northeastern Hungary. And he addresses some interesting ideas about why monstrous characters like werewolves, 
vampires and the blood countess herself become ingrained in our imaginations and popular culture. Corti begins his article in exploring the notion of the monstrous, and for this, he returns to the most fundamental misconception of ethnocentrism. In his view here, this is not ours, we're just thinking this is interesting. Yes. That a sense of Western superiority has the Western population, the people, accepting tropes, or I guess in this case, these are based on misconceptions, these tropes, misconceptions of ideas regarding legends and folklore. And this is to satisfy their curiosity and fantasy. So you see what he's saying here is that we have a lot of misconceptions because we want to fill those gaps that provide us with mythology here in the West. He would and, love our show. And then we just, do, we do <laughs> fill a lot of gaps with, with crap. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, well, Gertie says people should know better than to accept these tropes as fact, as we try to establish here on the show. A lot of this, you got to take with a grain of salt, do your own research, come up with your own conclusions. But they just accept them as fact, and they're satisfied. But this concept of the monstrous became a staple of Western popular culture, but also of Asian cultures, too, if you consider the very popular Chinese and Japanese werewolf and vampire fantasy movies and those genres that they spawn. Now, the story of Elizabeth Battery has become one of the most prominent in the history of Eastern European vampire monstrosities, at least for Europe, if not that well known here in the U.S., Scholars from the region seem to agree that there has been a demonizing and criminalizing of Eastern Europe that is a social and historical construction. But then how do you explain the enduring popularity of a character like Count Dracula and his homeland, Transylvania? Basically, he goes on to say that, uh, yeah, since 1930, there have been at least 150 films with the name Dracula in the title and at least 400 others that have dealt with vampire themes. So it's a very popular and enduring legend and, and myth, and again, people just accept a lot of the stuff they see in the movies or in these stories as true, or as at least true in regards to real mythology. Like, they'll accept these things as, oh, I guess that's part of the vampire lore and mythologies. So right. That's enough for me. It's exciting, and it's scary, and it's, it's kind of fun. I'll just accept that. So that's kind of the ethnocentrism that Corti is talking about here. And in regards to movies where evil takes place, the homeland of evil, where does that usually happen? Eastern Europe. Like, think of the Hostel movies. I don't yeah. think you saw that, but it's, it's some mysterious Eastern European town. Right. They're all up to something. They're all mysterious and foreign, and uh, they have weird customs, and they're probably going to kill you. And even with the Hostel sequel, there's a battery-like character bathing in blood from a young girl that she captures who happens to be a tourist. Well, there you go. Yeah, there's a lot of borrowing there, but vampirism and thus the monstrous has become, over the centuries, intertwined with Eastern Europe. This monstrous or horror aspect of this other Europe, Eastern Europe, it started well before the 20th century because, you know, of all the strange customs and seemingly strange people, at least to Westerners. But what has endured are the popular culture characters like Frankenstein's monster, Count Dracula, the Gollum. And all of these have Eastern European backgrounds. And then Kurti lists something that he calls the evil and cannibalistic Morlock, which I can't find much on unless he's talking about medieval Dalmatian peasants or he's talking about the Morlocks from H.G. Wells's Time Machine. Yeah, I feel like it's not a time machine. That's <laughs> no, well, just a hunch, but I don't know. No, I think it's a local term, which he states in his papers being one of the, one of the monstrosities right. of Eastern Europe. But again, I couldn't find a whole lot on it. Just on a cursory search. But in reality, actually, you know, the political and ethnic volatility over the years has helped give the territories a dark and sinister reputation. It's just the way it's kind of unfolded there. 
But here's something interesting. If you look at probably the most popular character arising out of these stories of cultural and historical factors here, Count Dracula, Bram Stoker's Dracula was inspired by Vlad Tepes or Vlad the Impaler. But he was not historically a vampire. He was known for being brutal, but he was never, as I know, accused of drinking blood. No. Not like Elizabeth. No. Bathory, however, was and is remembered mostly as a form of vampire bathing in blood, probably drinking it and eating human flesh. Yeah. Another thing that he was never accused of, just impaling a lot of people and being horribly cruel. But there are people who defend him and say, well, he was just very religiously strict, socially very strict, and he allowed no deviance from his laws. And if he caught you, the the punishment was was horrible. Right. But he's most likely a psychotic, of course. Yeah. So my point with all that is that you may argue that that's what was going on at the time, but it was not acceptable to everybody. And I think the point here with this paper is that to Western Europeans, stories like that demonizes the whole area, even though you may say, well, he was just very strict. And he kept order with an iron fist and, and a long, sharp pole. When those stories come out like that, yeah, that doesn't go away. And it demonizes the whole area. So as Kurti goes on to say, and I'm going to paraphrase his uh, or synopsize his thoughts here, is that the most common aspect of Battery's story and her reign of terror is that of the bloodbath. But it's not supported by any evidence. That's the thing that we know her about. She, she bathed in the blood of virgins. But in spite of the fact of not having any evidence towards it, of course, that's what filmmakers and writers ever since have seized upon because it's got a lot of uh, sexy elements to it. Her being sexy herself, very attractive, alluring, sophisticated. She's beautiful, but she's extremely cruel. There's a lot of strange possible sexual things going on with her. It's a very alluring character for film and TV and art, you know, in any case. Somewhere in our research, I read just in the past couple of days, actually, that when she was found dead after she'd been, you know, supposedly bricked Mm -hmm. up in the castle was the only reason that they found she was dead was that a guard had heard how beautiful she was and he wanted to look in to see what she looked like. Really? And he peeked in through the hole for the food and Uh that's when he realized that she was dead in there. Yeah, there's another part of the story where... uh, the last thing she said was, uh, I feel very cold tonight. And I think the, the guard said, never mind, mistress, just lay down and go to sleep. And then that was the end of it. There you go. So she was slowly dying for a long time, for years there. Well, the other aspect with Elizabeth is that she's also a serial killer. And how popular is that subject now? There's a new Ted Bundy series on Netflix doing very well. So we have a fascination with this because it's somebody who's also very prolific and successful at it. And certainly, you know, if that number is true, over 650, that's quite a number, even more so than modern times. But, of course, she had her status of power and privilege to help her get away with all this, if you believe any of this at all. Well, there are also fabrications kind of done with uh, more recent authors, as mentioned here by Corti, Raymond T. McNally, uh, his Romanian colleague, Radu Florescu, and their book, In Search of Dracula, has listed a lot of uh, things that may be argued against as accurate that they claim is the true history of Elizabeth, that she was actually a real living vampiress. Not totally, as far as we can tell, uh, provable. But it's, again, you're selling books. So in conclusion here with Quirty's paper, what he says that all of the above may sound a bit far-fetched as an idea that in the arts, as well as in politics and international relations, Old national stereotypes, popular imagery, and misconceived ideas, by all means part of the balkanization or Morlockism, I guess demonizing people, survive 
into the 21st century and possibly even beyond. We all need to take a deep breath and accept this as one aspect, perhaps not the best one, of our human capacity to order the world of arts. And possibly this is also a structural element of the fantastic, which traditionally included tales of myths and which has now infiltrated mainstream popular culture in the form of video games, cell phones, TV, the World Wide Web. So what he's saying is that all of our misconceptions and popular ideas of mythology that we're willing to accept as fact have all filtered down and it's just really woven into our popular culture, our pop culture fabric here. It's taken on a life of its own. And it's not all accurate. And yeah. we should just keep that in mind. And Well, I mean, yeah. again, I know I, I come back to this a lot, but I think a lot about, I learned a lot about the origins of mythology from the Jersey yeah. Devil story. Right. Especially when it comes to a story like this. There are these seeds of really crazy things at the mm -hmm. root of it. But the end story and the beginning story, both equally fascinating, don't really have necessarily a ton in common. That's part of it. So, or much not, in common at all, really. Yeah, I Just mean, a I, little bit. There's a cross, a little bit of a crossover. Right. You might think that we're getting off the case of this true crime incident that yeah. happened in the late, late Middle Ages here. We're getting out of the Middle Ages, uh, the late Middle Ages period here. And what does this have to do, folklore and mythology and this mythos and all this kind of stuff have to do with her? Well, I speaking of lore, I just watched, she's in season two of lore, and they just oh, yeah, kind of run the story. Oh, yeah, they did an episode on her, yeah. Yeah, and it, it was entertaining. Yeah. And it was all the same things that we just talked about that are all the sensational aspects of it, because that's what makes the story. That's the point here. But just keep in mind, it's not always the truth. If you want the real truth, then go to the scholarship on it, go read your history books on it, and go digging a little to find the real truth, and then you kind of know where these things come from. All of these elements contribute to making the fascination with Elizabeth Bathory so pop-culturally enduring. This is our, our true crime fascination with serial killers and the titillating pansexual aspect of her supposed activities. The also supposed witchcraft and occult practices angle. And all this, you know, the, the horror, the gore, the entertainment genre, many find entertaining. And then you add to that the mysterious and sinister backdrop of an Eastern European geography and with its history and its otherness. And this all fuels the imagination of cultures outside of the region. And often, a lot of times inside of the region itself. You know, if you go to the, the tourism places here, that's what we were talking about before. It's Slovakia can have their own... Countess Dracula, and you can't really blame them. It's like, well, we got that's pretty exciting, right? And yeah. she was a real character, unlike the Dracula guy who was a pastiche. She really was here. At least they have that. And All he did was win. impale people, <laughs> right? She may have torn flesh and eaten it and bathed in blood. So, in that regard, Battery's story checks a lot of the boxes for many who find these things fascinating for whatever reason. And her legend fits the trope of the monstrous perfectly. And having a monster and their legends at the far end of the scale helps us gauge and contemplate the range of human behavior as a whole. You know what I'm saying? You got her like, well, that's the worst of the worst. It gives you something to judge human behavior by. And it lets us safely imagine the worst things a human being can do. Well, it's time to talk about our conclusions and wrap up this series on the ever-fascinating Elizabeth Battery. Mm -hmm. I'm... I got to say, coming into it, I didn't know a whole lot about her. We've mm -hmm. done our cursory research. We've come up with a lot of fascinating information. And I learn as much about how legends are formed from these stories as I do about the stories themselves. That's what's really fascinating to me. 
And the great thing about doing this, as long as we've been doing the show now, which is, you know, not a long time by most comparisons, but almost five years, it's cool because you start to see the explanations for stories of this kind and these legends as you're reading even the the bigger picture of the story, you can see behind what might have led to the end result of the story. But what I want to say is that you also start to get, or at least I am more and more starting to get a gut feel for what I think might have happened when it comes to a legend like Elizabeth Battery. Yeah. I can't stand by it. I don't have years of education in Eastern European history, and I tried to reserve judgment until we get to this point in the series. But uh, based on what we've heard here, I think she probably was definitely up to something. And <laughs> yes, I think that's, that's I, my basic think, conclusion, too. Yeah. Yeah. I really think that. I don't think that she is just persecuted. It helps to have read some of the papers and things that we've read along the way, to be completely fair, that are written yeah. by women pursuing graduate degrees that I think would take a, a pretty fair look at the history of Elizabeth Battery mm -hmm. and try to determine if she may have been maligned just for having been a widow with a lot of power back in that time period, it's fascinating to see all the angles on that. Yeah. And yeah. it does seem like, based on everything we've uncovered, even the people who have pointed to a possible conspiracy theory against her, even those folks seem to be saying, but I don't really think that's necessarily the case. Yeah. And the real question, though, is... And I'm not sure how much it matters all these hundreds of years later. It yeah. obviously matters. Every life counts. But it's like, was it 650 or was it 30 or 40? And, well, that's my other point, Or was too, it 80 or was yeah. it, you know, it's a lot of people. If, if you, no one yeah. is saying it's zero. Right. There were deaths. I think the best you could say in, in the defenses for her are that, yeah, some young maidens died, but it's the Middle Ages and that happened. It's cold. It's drafty. People got colds. They... They got the flu, they died. That certainly did happen. But if some of this is true, and again, it's a wide number, a vast number of depositions against her, you could say, why do you need that many? It's, uh, well, it's easy, and, it's easy to see how false depositions or sure. sort of a pile-on thing could happen because criminal justice wasn't exactly a science at that time. And even today, we're still smoothing out the edges. Yeah. But especially with the false confessions or the torture and all that, it's easy to see how information could have gotten blown out of proportion. But it's sure. also hard to see how there's absolutely nothing to this. That doesn't seem possible. Right. Well, here's my other point about that is that, yeah, you could have given uh, a valuable coin to everybody that wrote something down that was terrible, or actually they didn't write. It was a lot of the peasants, but it was not just peasants too, but people of the town, clergy and whatnot, who were giving these depositions to at least the two notaries that were going around collecting evidence or testimonies. And maybe it's all false, but my point is, if it is true that some daughters of the nobility went missing after they sent their daughters there, like, you know, those are accountable people is what I'm Just saying. See, that's the research I want to see. I want to see somebody go over there and go through all those archives mm -hmm. that were previously unavailable and really try to determine if there were any missing girls of nobility, young yeah, girls of nobility. I mean, that, uh... And maybe it's not even in the books, but it just shows that an unusual number of them all have particularly short lifespans, or they've made it right. just to their early teens or just before then and disappeared, even if it's not documented, if you could identify any kind of pattern mm -hmm. pointing to Elizabeth Battery's crimes. Well, I think Tony Thorne did go through a lot of these. I read, I think, somewhere in the descriptions that he went through all of them. This, you're talking about medieval Hungarian. Yes. And, and probably Latin as well, if it was uh, the trial was done in both languages. 
and it took months. That's one of the things that the author, Romina Nicolades, says in her vamp.org article, Elizabeth Battery's Bloodbath, separating myth from reality. She makes a good point here, and I agree with a lot of her things that she said, is that, you know, this show trial, if you want to say, took months. It was basically going through all the motions, at least. It wasn't a rush. But if you do have missing people that are notable, again, these are families of lesser nobility, but when you go to do your Ancestry.com research, it helps to have some nobility in there, right? Because they kept records. Yes, it does. Yeah, so you may not have cause of death in there, but you can see a lot of, uh, again, maybe it's just a coincidence, they go to the castle to learn etiquette and they don't ever come back. And then there's testimony, again, of some horrible sights there, which I'm not really buying the folk medicine that people are misinterpreting, you know, just a few leeches here and there, or some poultices that if you go up and somebody's really suffering and say like, hey, who who did this? Well, she did. Now you're safe. Or maybe you could say it was railroad and they were just like, she did this, right? You're going to say that. And then we're going to protect you from these horrible conditions or whatever, but just go along with us. Like, that's possible too. But what I'm saying is that there seem to be so many testimonies, again, not just from faceless people, but from people of note who weren't going to gain in any property that they would, they would get nothing from this. Well, and here's the other thing, and it's not hard to conceive of this, because this happens even to this day. Anyone who watches Dateline or 48 mm-hmm. Hours or 2020 will tell you there are still situations where prosecutors, you find out years later that they threw the case a little bit. Oh, and, sure. Yeah, and, and in some cases, somebody was wrongfully convicted who was innocent. In other cases, a person was guilty, but they wanted to make sure that the guilt stuck because right. there wasn't quite enough evidence. Yeah. There's no question that would have been going on back here. So that's sure. another situation where Turzo might have said, we got to do something about this. We need to make sure this sticks. We mm-hmm. need to get all these testimonies. We uh, Let's go ahead and get this girl, the servant girl in here to say it was 600 victims. Mm-hmm. Because the reality is it was 80 or 60 or 40, but we need to make sure that we have the power to take action here. Right, right. And so it's not inconceivable that that would have happened. Right. So in summation here from the Romina Nicolades article here, she brings up some points that, you know, at least one of them here aligns with Thorne in that, Why would you go to this amount of elaborate show and all these accusations that are recorded to make them stick when just a few probably would work? As Thorne himself says, you could just accuse her of witchcraft, get maybe 10 good witnesses to testify against her of uh, different rankings, and that would be enough to sideline her. And then you could kind of move in on her property and whatever remaining wealth she had if you wanted to. And according to Nicolades, she says the Countess herself was recorded to have said that she'd been driven to murder because she was afraid of her cohorts there, the crones and the other caretaker there, Fitzko, I think, that they were kind of running the show. Or maybe that was an excuse by her, but uh, that's interesting. That's certainly happened before. It could be that, you know, you get into that whole... I mean, for all we know, Fitzko was a Charlie Manson type. Who knows? (laughs) Well, no, my point is, if that was actually said and recorded by her, I'd like to know that. Is that that accurate? Yeah. Did she really say that? Because that's telling. Well, at least she's saying that she committed murder. Yeah. Did did she really do that? She's copying to it right Right, there. Did she do that, though? Yeah. Do we know if if that's on record as her admitting to it during the course of the trial? Do we know that? Right. Well, if she was just a scapegoat... They probably would have just killed her. That's another argument here. Why would you keep her bricked up and alive other than that's a family thing that they had arranged that they didn't really want her executed? And the king said, fine, I'll I'll give you that one, but she's got to be out of the picture. 
you know, talking about if she actually did say that, that's an admission of guilt. What I'd read before was that there was no word from her yay or nay, as we stated earlier, whether right. she was guilty or innocent by her own words. Right, that's right. So, I, that. yeah, I don't know. That would be interesting to see if she actually did say that. And the other thing about her properties is that she did manage to pass them on to her children. So it's not like the Crown seized them immediately. That was part of the deals that she was able to give her properties, mostly to, I think, her one son, Paul. Right. Paul, Paul in Hungarian. So that's an argument against the wealth immediately going to schemers and that it's another four years before they would get anything. Plus, then the kids get it and then uh, they get banned, as we said earlier. So it was a long roundabout way to grab a bunch of land, which according to that one paper we read earlier, she didn't have as much towards the end here as she used to. Right. So it wasn't a whole treasure trove of stuff. And if you go back to Nicolaides' article, she is stated, by July of 1611, 224 witnesses had already testified against her, and she's taken that from Kimberly Craft's book. By September, 34 depositions had been taken by the Palatine against the Countess. So the argument here is that Torzo, George Torzo, is seeming to be doing his job, but also protecting her a little. So it's, again, as we stated earlier, it's, we're, we're restating this, it's a curious position. It doesn't seem to be totally, he's just out to sandbag her because he was friends with Ferenc and her, you know, when they were together that, mm -hmm. you know, they are related. And, right. uh, yeah, he's the biggest mystery in the whole thing for me. Yeah. Like, I mean, she's what she did is a mystery, but Torzo's actions are confusing and hard to understand. Well, you can be argued too, as Romina does here, that if he wished to stay on the king's good side, he probably just would have killed her. One argument against him was that he always, or usually went to the quickest, most expeditious verdict of guilty, get him out of the way. But here, he's going against the king's wishes. And the king's the one in power. So he's trying to negotiate something and not really, you know what I'm saying? It's like the best thing probably for him politically would just do what the king says. What if he was having a thing with her? Well, that's also... That would explain uh, some well, of it, It's funny. It? There are intimations that he was attracted to her. Yeah. Because uh, his own wife was uh, not real bright, I guess. That's the, the pain. Oh, goodness. Yeah, that's... Well, Elizabeth, again, she's a shining <laughs> star in the area. She yeah. can speak four languages. She can read and write. A lot of the guys couldn't. Yeah. A lot of the, the noble dudes of the time could only write a little bit or just read a little bit. Did so, you say noble dudes? Noble dudes of the uh, <laughs> nobility, the, the gentlemen of the, okay. yeah, the landed gentry. Sure. Is the name of my high school band, actually? Noble dudes? No, I'm saying Noble gas was never in a band. Okay. Yeah. yeah, she's a rock star in the area, especially yeah. among the nobility, and he may have been attracted to her. And maybe that, that played beautiful. into it. Yeah, maybe that played into it. Yeah. And again, there's a lot of sexy rumors floating around about her, especially yes. at the time, and especially when Ferenc was away. Right. There are a lot of rumors of, that she was entertaining a lot of people, let's say. So in summation of all these points leading to her having some culpability in these crimes that, again, how many is too many back then? People say like, well, if you killed 20 servants, that's fine. You know, It happens. Even if you count that, she's guilty of like horrible murders to peasant people, which yeah. you may count as like, well, that's exaggerated. But again... I'm not going to be the judge of uh, how much is too much back in the day. <laughs> Frankly, for me, any torture or cruelty is too much. And I'll go with a very common conclusion about her, is that she had some form of sadistic personality disorder. If you're going to try and classify her behavior and the stories about her, 
even if she didn't kill anybody, it did seem like, yeah, she was pretty cruel and sadistic to a lot of people and would fall under that. And if you give somebody a lot of power to do whatever they want without recourse, things can get out of hand. And I believe that was probably the case here. So, in the end, what was Elizabeth Bathory really? Was she one of the most sadistic and prolific serial killers in history? Or just a misunderstood and unjustly accused noblewoman who lived during a violent era? We may never know, but whatever she really was, her legend is the monster we've all created. That's going to wrap up part two of our two-part series on Elizabeth Bathory, The Blood Countess. We're dark next week, but we'll be back the week after that with a fascinating roundtable story discussion about a missing time incident with Phineas and Ferb co-creator Dan Povenmire, playwright Susan Lambert, and screen and television writer Rich Haddam, followed by a discussion on missing time stories in general with author Micah Hanks. Please remember to support our sponsors. They help keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolin. Hi. I'm Steven Vuksevich. I'm Linnea Ospai. And I'm Johanna Erickson. That is S-T-E, V as in Victor. But we, we wouldn't say no to compensation. Yeah. But we're fine that <laughs> it won't be compensated. Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees-Wendel and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also our head of research. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane, and our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to the Astonishing Research Corps. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night. Good night.